Lord, we thank you for your unspeakable love for sinners like us. Sinners who have been made into your children of God, um, into your children, children of God, no longer children of wrath. Lord, what, what can we say this morning but um, thank you and that we worship you? What can we say from these transformed hearts except that we love you and we desire you above all things? We pray that as we open your word, you would only feed that desire with truth from your word about you, that our lives and our pursuit of you would be guided by truth and not merely by what we feel or don't feel, but that truth would be an unchanging bedrock to stand on. And so, Lord, we pray to that end. We want to see you. We want to see your son. We want to know what it's like to be under your salvation love in Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. You can take your Bibles and we're going to open them back up this morning to Psalm 23. Psalm 23. We're doing a part two that we started last week. A very familiar psalm to nearly everybody. A lot of unbelievers would catch on to these words, right? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Probably the most famous verse. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of Yahweh forever. One of the goals that we're trying to achieve with our study of this amazing psalm is to show its great benefit for the now, for the moment, for the present. And, and not just for the day when death's dark shadow does come. The psalm is famous for that um, because of the way that it's translated with verse 4. And there's no doubt Psalm 23 will be one of your best helps when the day of death does arrive. It's true. But I hope you'll discover what one of my uh, seminary professors says about this psalm. That um, I hope you discover that Psalm 23 is even more so a psalm of the present, of the now, of the moment that you are in. Um, we illustrated it this way last time. Psalm 23 is not merely a retirement fund or a 401k. That you, you know it's there now, you know it's there today, but you can't benefit from it today, or you shouldn't benefit from it today. Rather, Psalm 23 is your daily checking account that never dries up, that you need to access moment by moment to get through your life. David is most likely not writing this psalm on his deathbed. But he is writing what he discovered about God moment by moment throughout his challenging life and what it was like for him to be under his, uh, God's salvation care on a moment by moment basis. And this is a psalm that we greatly need ourselves. 
So it really doesn't matter what kind of day today is for you. If today is a, a day where there's just really great blessing and happiness and rest for you, well, Psalm 23 tells you where that came from, who it came from. And if today is the day before an unexpected trial is coming that will bring you to your knees, then Psalm 23 assures you of what you will find your good shepherd to be like when that comes tomorrow. And if today is another long day in the midst of a very long and difficult trial, Psalm 23 provides for you the bedrock truth about your good shepherd that you still need to cling to and stand on. And if today is that great day of deliverance from a very long trial, Psalm 23 provides for you the words of worship and thankfulness that you can express to God from your heart. And yes, even if today is the day that you climb into your deathbed and you never get out of it again, Psalm 23 provides you the truth about your good shepherd who is drawing you near to him, nearer than ever through death. So we're examining Psalm 23 through three declarations that David makes concerning what it was like to live under the shepherding character and care of Yahweh. What it was like to be the honored guest of Yahweh at Yahweh's table. David made these three I statements which are worshipful declarations of what it was like to live under the salvation care of God. So let's look at the whole psalm again briefly, just for review, so you kind of see the whole roadmap of Psalm 23. And just so you know, um, we're going to need even more Sundays after today to finish this. So October, we'll move on to something else. I don't know what, but um, here's the three declarations. David declared, number one, God's abounding provision as his shepherd. And that statement is based on David's declaration at the end of verse one, I shall not want. David is saying there is such an abounding care from his shepherd, Yahweh, that David declares, I shall not want. Probably a better way to give the, the sense of that is, is a present tense idea of I lack nothing. I am lacking nothing. Presently, in the moment, I lack nothing. So David declared first God's abounding provision as his shepherd. And then secondly, David declared God's safeguarding presence as his shepherd. And that's in verse 4. And that is based on David's I statement in the middle of verse 4. I fear no evil, for you are with me. Yahweh is present with David. And his declaration is that he is safeguarded by Yahweh so much so that he fears no evil. Now, if you notice at the beginning of verse 4, there's actually another I statement that David makes, but that one is not like the others, which more directly speak to the benefits from God's care over David as shepherd. It's simply an I statement that expresses the difficulties that sometimes indeed come in life. I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. So the second worshipful declaration is God's safeguarding presence as his shepherd. Thirdly, David declared God's enticing pursuit as his host. And that is based off of the um, statement at the end of verse 6, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The motif shifts at verse 5 away from shepherd 
Yahweh as shepherd to Yahweh as a host in a house. In fact, what Yahweh is doing with David as he is hosting David, he has welcomed David into his presence. He is honoring David at his table, and he is even doing something shocking. He is allowing David's enemies to watch all this, and he, Yahweh, is vindicating David in front of his enemies. They can't do anything. They can't touch him. It brings Yahweh pleasure to humiliate David's enemies that way. And this declaration is based on his last statement in verse 6. I will dwell in the house of Yahweh forever. There's a, a better sense to, uh, of translating that than, than dwell. It's better to translate it as return. You might even see that in your margin. I will return to the house of the Lord, of Yahweh. And, and the word forever has more the sense of for length of days. For length of days. However long my days run and go, I will return to the house of Yahweh. So the better translation might be, I will return again and again to the house of Yahweh for the length of days I have. That's quite a declaration to make about what it was like to be spoiled by Yahweh at his table. To be his salvation guest at his table. David was pursued by the goodness and loving kindness of Yahweh, verse 6. Yahweh was hosting him with that goodness and loving kindness in such a way that David declared that he could not stay away from him, but that he would keep coming back for more. That's what we mean when we say God's pursuit of him was enticing It was an enticing pursuit that David experienced. David enjoyed being pursued by Yahweh. And so he declared that he would keep coming back for more of that special care of Yahweh. So there are your three declarations of Psalm in Psalm 23. Let's we started the first one last week. Let's let's see if we can finish it today. So let's go back to the first one. Number one, David declared God's abounding provision as his shepherd. And again, this is based on the statement of I shall not want at the end of verse one. Or I am lacking nothing under his care. God's shepherd character, God's shepherd care, they were so abundant that David could not think of something that he lacked under his God. David did not have a deficit that he was experiencing, being under Yahweh's salvation care. What is he like? Well, Yahweh is my shepherd. Upon saying, um, by way of review from last week, by saying Yahweh is my shepherd, David is immediately saying something about himself too. He's saying, and I am his sheep. There's actually a very sweet relationship that exists between the sheep and the, um, their shepherd. Um, Jesus said that his familiarity with his sheep and his intimacy with his sheep was so intense, so near that um, his sheep know his voice when he calls and they will not go to another. They will not answer another. That's a sweet relationship that the believer has with Jesus Christ, the good shepherd. David, the sheep believer, says Yahweh is my shepherd. He doesn't just say Yahweh is the shepherd of Israel. But this is intensely personal for David. He's my shepherd. And Yahweh is, right now, in this moment, 
my shepherd. He is always in my moment as my shepherd. And upon that reflection about Yahweh, what does he say? He says, I do not lack a thing. I am not lacking a thing. Again, when the, when the true believer in Jesus Christ contemplates who Jesus is, when he contemplates what, he is, what it's like to live under the salvation care of Jesus, the believer comes to the conclusion there is no deficit I am experiencing because God's provision is so abounding. Now watch how David proves that. Proves that he has no deficits under Yahweh's shepherding care of his life. That's in verses 2 to 3. David, the believer, says something like, let me think for a moment. He's my shepherd. Let me think for a moment about what I lack. Let's see. Verse 2. He makes me lie down. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me. I lack nothing. This is why David can declare as a sheep under the care of God, his shepherd, that he is not lacking anything because of the way that God is towards him. So let's unpack this. Verse two. First, he makes me lie down in green pastures. That's how David says, I know I'm not lacking anything. Green pastures. It's, it's meadows richly covered with grass. It's pastures of fresh, tender grass from the rainy season. And Yahweh is the one who makes the believer to lie down in them. The believer doesn't repose himself to that position. God determines when it's time to lie down and rest and eat. And to lie down means the sheep's chest is to the ground. Chest to ground, chest to floor. That is for um, an animal like a sheep, That is truly the most defenseless posture that a defenseless prey like a sheep could take because that's the position that would require the most energy to get up and run. That is the position where you are least prepared to flee if any harm is coming. So by contrast, standing in a green pasture is one thing, crouching in a green pasture is one thing, sitting in a Green pasture is one thing. Being on your hands and knees in a green pasture is one thing. But it is quite another thing to be chest to the ground, in the grass. That's a vulnerable position to be in. Well, when would a sheep do that? Why would a sheep do that? Only when and because the shepherd was near. Because the shepherd was watching, scanning the horizon. And because the shepherd came and actually pushed the sheep to the floor, to the ground, to eat and to rest. The sheep can be chest to the ground because the shepherd is not chest to the ground, lying down. But is instead scanning the horizon for predators, watching. And David says, that's how I know I am lacking nothing. My chest is to the ground. My mouth is where the grass is. He put me there. What deficit do I have? My shepherd has provided what I need. Uh, Go to Joel. Keep your hand in Psalm 23, but go to Joel chapter 1. I want you to see something about these green pastures. Daniel, Hosea, Joel, right? Joel chapter 1. 
Green pastures or lush, grassy meadows, they are evidence in the Old Testament prophets of God's favor, of God's blessing, of God's restorative love for Israel. And when the grass is pictured as burnt up, when the grass of the meadows or the pastures are described as being scorched by fire, it is evidence of God's discipline or God's judgment on Israel, especially in connection with the day of the Lord. Let me show you in Joel chapter 1, verse 14. Watch this. Consecrate a fast. Proclaim a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of Yahweh your God and cry out to Yahweh, alas for the day. For the day of Yahweh is near. What kind of a day is this? It will come as destruction from the Almighty. The day of the Lord for Israel comes and has two sides like to the same coin. One side is a side of judgment upon them when Yahweh brings out his wrath upon them. And then at the same time, not at the same time, but upon that, restores them then to himself in entirety. So here is the focus on the destruction from the Almighty. Verse 16, has not food been cut off before our eyes, gladness and joy from the house of our God? The seeds shrivel under their clods. The storehouses are desolate. The barns are torn down for the grain is dried up. How the beasts groan. The herds of cattle wander aimlessly because there is no pasture for them. Even the flocks of sheep suffer. To you, O Yahweh, I cry, for fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness and the flame has burned up all the trees of the field. Even the beasts of the field pant for you, for the water brooks are dried up and fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. God's wrath is upon Israel. They are feeling it. Even the beasts cry out. Look over in chapter 2, verse 18. Here's the other side of it. Then Yahweh will be zealous for his land and will have pity on his people. Yahweh will answer and say to his people, Behold, I'm going to send you grain, new wine and oil, and you will be satisfied and full with them, and I will never again make you a reproach among the nations. But I will remove the northern army from you, and I will drive it into a parched and desolate land, and its vanguard into the eastern sea, and its rear guard into the western sea, and its stench will arise, and its foul smell will come up, for it has done great things. Do not fear, O land. Rejoice and be glad, for Yahweh has done great things. Do not fear, beasts of the field, the ones who were before panting. For the pastures of the wilderness have turned green. For the tree has borne its fruit. The fig tree and the vine have yielded in full. So rejoice, O sons of Zion, and be glad in Yahweh your God, for he has given you the early rain for your vindication, and he has poured down for you the rain, the early and latter rain as before. The threshing floors will be full of grain, and the vats will overflow with new wine and oil. Then I will make up to you for the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the creeping, the stripping, the gnawing locust, my great army which I sent among you. You will have plenty to eat and be satisfied, and praise the name of Yahweh your God who has dealt wondrously with you. Then my people will never be put to shame. Thus you will know that I am in the midst of Israel. When you see all of that, death you'll know, and that I am Yahweh your God, and there is no other, and my people will never be put to shame. So, 
back in Psalm 23, to lie down in green pastures is not just about getting a snack and a nap. It is that. It is much more than that. It is also evidence of being under the salvation favor and being under the salvation blessing, under the salvation love of Yahweh the shepherd. There is no judgment for God, for David to fear. He is chest to the floor in the salvation favor of his shepherd. David is experiencing the favor of Yahweh and he is not lacking anything in that favor and that blessing. And listen, Christian, this is true for us. How much more so even in Christ? Are you not also in Christ safe from his wrath, his judgment? Are you not chest to floor in the salvation favor of God for you through Jesus that Jesus secured for you through his atoning death and resurrection from the dead? Are you not basking today in his salvation favor? He made you lie down in it. You didn't earn it. You didn't do it for yourself. There is no condemnation for you if you are in Christ. And by the way, you're you're not in pasture. You're in Christ, right? You have everything you need there. Psalm 23, there's even more proof that David is not lacking anything under Yahweh's shepherding care. Verse 2, he leads me beside quiet waters. The idea here of Yahweh's act of leading is that he is escorting them with good intentions, with goodness. You know, guards in a prison escort and lead prisoners down a dark hall, especially those who are on death row, they do that. This is not that kind of leading. This is a very, very different kind of leading. He escorts from his goodness and from his kind intention toward those he loves. And David was experiencing the benevolent character of God in this leading. When when Yahweh leads like this, I want you to see some other words that surround this leading. Go back to Exodus 15, verse 13 for a moment. Exodus 15, verse 13 Moses and Israel have just come out of the Red Sea. They're on the other side. They're singing Moses' song that he taught them. And this is what he says. Notice what it says about when it says that he led the people. Exodus 15, verse 13. In your loving kindness, you have led the people whom you have redeemed. In your strength, you have guided them to your holy habitation. Do you see the words that surround that kind of leading? Loving kindness. I redeemed you, my strength. That's the kind of thing that is going on with this leadership. So that is what God was like when he led Israel into the wilderness. One day, go to Isaiah 40, verse 11. Yahweh will lead like this again. This is really a tender verse. Look at this, Isaiah 40, verse 11. Look at the words that surround this idea of God leading his flock, Israel. Like a shepherd, he will tend his flock. In his arm, he will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead the nursing ewes. Gently lead. And David experienced personally from Yahweh what the nation experienced 
corporately from Yahweh and will experience again corporately from Yahweh one day. He leads me with good intention. And let me point out the obvious to you in verse two because that's about all I'm good for. He, he leads me. He leads me. The sheep are not huddled together, drawing straws on who will leave the flock and go out on reconnaissance as the mortar fire comes in. Somebody's got to go find water for the rest of us. No, that's not what the sheep do. The shepherd knows where the water is. And he simply leads his sheep there. Water is simply not the sheep's responsibility to be concerned with. It is the shepherd's responsibility. And he leads me. He leads me beside quiet waters or toward quiet waters. Probably a a better translation there is even waters of a resting place. He leads me to or beside waters of a resting place. Waters um, by a resting place. The the word quiet in front of there or or the word still in front of waters, in my opinion, it doesn't so much describe the action of the water or the inaction of the water as opposed to like rushing waters. These are still waters. I don't think that's the sense. But the description is of a place of rest or quiet or stillness and there's waters there. So Yahweh, David's shepherd, leads him from his goodness, his kind intentions to a place of rest and refreshment where there happens to be waters to drink from. This is David's expressive way of of proving how he has no deficits under Yahweh's care. When Yahweh is this way toward me, David could say, what am I lacking? I am lacking nothing. And, And is not Jesus, our good shepherd, the one who knows best where rest is found? Let me take you to a, a familiar New Testament passage. Go to Matthew 11, verse 28. Jesus would never lead you to a place that actually did not have rest. He would only lead you to the perfect destination of rest. And I want you to notice where he says it is when he bids the weary and heavy laden to come. He says in verse 28, come to church, all who are weary and heavy laden. He doesn't say that, does he? He says, come to me. Listen, it's good to go to church, but church is not your source of rest. Jesus is, believer. Unbeliever, your only source of rest is Jesus Christ. You may not have discovered him yet to be that, but he is. And it's not this place. We will wear each other out, but not Jesus. He is rest. Come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It's pleasant to live under my leadership. Come to me, he says. He is the resting place. He is the location of rest for your soul. Your sin-wearied, sin-burdened soul needs the rest that he himself is 
that he provides in his forgiveness of sin. But not only is Jesus the resting place for your soul, he is also the source of life-giving water for your soul. I look over at John 4, another very familiar passage. You remember this? John 4, verse 13, Jesus is with the uh, Samaritan woman at the well in Samaria. He says in chapter 4, verse 13, um, everyone who drinks of this water in this well will thirst again. Verse 14, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst, but the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. With the resting place that Jesus is, for your soul, and the life-giving water that he provides to assuage your soul's thirst, ask yourself, what do I lack? And with David, answer, I am lacking nothing. Nothing. Back to Psalm 23. David continues to provide, approve the the bounding provision of Yahweh, his shepherd again. Verse three, he restores my soul. He restores my soul. I think the present tense is good there. He restores my soul. Not that he restored it. He certainly did that in the past for David, but he restores it. And I think that word restore is to be taken probably in an unrestricted sense. Uh, Everything from he converts, converted, he turned in repentance, my soul. He refreshes my soul, renews my soul, revives my soul. Yahweh is the one who restores my soul in this manner, moment by moment. The once and for all soul restoration that occurred in David at conversion is what he had in mind, and every restoring and reviving the soul needs after that, David, I believe, has in mind. My soul, that's the me who will continue to exist when my body dies, when your body dies. Your soul needs Restoring, converting from its sin to ruined condition. And then it needs repeated renewings, restoring, reviving, refreshing while it inhabits a body of sin. David says this restoring is not done by himself. He does not say, he showed me how to restore my soul. No, he restores my soul. It's proof that under Yahweh's salvation care, David could not think of a deficit that he had. God restored his very soul, restores it. Christian, think on how God does this for you. His spirit converts our souls, causes us to be born again. Jesus is meeting with Nicodemus in a dark night and Jesus talks to him about being born again his need to be born again. And then he goes on to describe the ministry of the Holy Spirit. That's the primary ministry of the Holy Spirit is to convert, to restore souls. Go over to 1 Peter chapter one. Keep your hand over in Psalm 23 because we'll come back. But go over to 1 Peter chapter one, verse 23. Does not God's word also convert, cause to be born again our souls or the means through which being born again comes Listen to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23. You have been born again, not of a seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is, you've been born again through the living and enduring word of God. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. 
The word of God is the means through which your soul is restored to God. And that is how a genuine relationship with God starts. That's how a genuine relationship with God begins. God, by his spirit, in conjunction with the ministry of his powerful word, restores the soul, restores the heart to him, makes you alive with new life in Christ. Maybe you are one who does not believe Jesus Christ at this moment. Then you are just like we all once were. You today are not any different than what we used to be. Who you are inwardly before God in your soul is actually what the Bible says is worthy of wrath, worthy of God's wrath. And that's because you are not yet one of his sheep. In fact, we could, if we're going to stay with that kind of imagery, we could say it's because you're a, a wolf. And shepherds are always at odds with wolves. And if you are still a wolf, you don't become a Christian by impersonating what sheep are like and do, all while still being a wolf underneath the sheep's clothing. But God alone, by his spirit and through the power of his word, can restore your soul with such transformative power that you actually become a sheep. You go from being a child of wrath to a child of God. God is not interested in you as you are adding something to your life, like church or Bible study or things like that, or even Christians around you, as good as those things can be, those things are not his power. A relationship with God begins with him converting you, causing you to be born again through the ministry of his word and by his spirit, restoring your soul to him in new birth. Listen, the wolf must no longer be a wolf. But the wolf must die and rise up anew as a sheep with the shepherd's life. And that is the most profound and deep change that would ever take place in your life, in your soul. And that is the way a relationship with Jesus Christ begins. The New Testament calls it becoming a new creature in Christ. It's like you were a wolf, but now you became this new creature called a sheep. By his doing, he restores my soul. Who you are inwardly before God, listen, unbeliever, who you are inwardly before God, it must be fundamentally converted, changed, made new, restored. So this morning, I just plead with you to turn to Christ. Turn to him and trust him. Trust him for that restoration that his forgiveness can bring. And then, upon entrance into that new life with him as one of his sheep in his fold, how will God not also with him freely give your soul everything that you need on a daily basis? You remember the the last night that Jesus spent with his disciples and he went, went around washing their feet? And he and Peter got into this little exchange about Peter saying, well, wash all of me and... 
And Jesus used this imagery that I think is helpful to understand what is needed on a daily basis for the follower of Jesus. He said, he who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. Born again. But daily, you need some cleansing. need some renewing. Some refreshing. Daily continual renewal of mind and heart and soul is provided for you by the very God who converted your soul. How? How does he do that on a daily basis? It's, again, it's, this is the ministry of his word. Go to Psalm 119. Let me just show you a, a few really important and encouraging verses. Psalm 119. Let's look at, uh, at verse 107. Psalm 119, 107. I am exceedingly afflicted, the psalmist says. Exceedingly afflicted. Life is hard. Therefore, here's my request. Revive me, O Yahweh, according to your word. Your word has a, it will be the standard by which I am requesting you to revive me. Your word, use it as a standard in reviving me. Go to Psalm 119, same Psalm, verse 149. Hear my voice according to your loving kindness. Revive me, O Yahweh, according to your ordinances, your word. Revive me according to your ordinances. Look at verse 154. Plead my cause and redeem me. Revive me according to your word. Verse 156, great are your mercies, O Lord. Revive me according to your ordinances. God's word is the very means, the very standard he uses for the afflicted believer, the weary one, to come back and say, I I need some reviving. And you find it in his word. So understand this. A restored soul. A believer in a starving body that is wasting away, but that has a restored soul, that believer can still declare, I am lacking nothing. A believer in a body that is being ravaged by cancer, but that has a restored soul, can still declare, I am lacking nothing. A believer in a body that is bound and is starting to burn at the stake, but with a restored soul, can declare to all from the flames, I am lacking nothing. So how much more so today can we, on a day of health and blessing and ease, declare the same from a spirit-restored soul? I am lacking nothing. Back to Psalm 23. Another proof that Yahweh's shepherding care is so abounding that David lacks nothing is seen in the statement, he guides me. He guides me in the path of righteousness, the paths of righteousness. He guides me. Again, David here is expressing only what he knew Yahweh to be like towards Israel corporately, how Yahweh had guided them. Flip over to Psalm 73 for a moment. Keep your spot in Psalm 23 because we'll be back there. But Psalm, I'm sorry, Psalm 78. Psalm 78, verse 14. Out in the wilderness, he, Yahweh, led them. He guided them with the cloud by day and all the night. He guided them with a light of fire. This guidance 
was going on 24-7, by day or by night. Look at verse 53 of the same psalm. And he led them safely, he guided them safely, so that they did not fear, but the sea engulfed their enemies. It was the kind of guiding where there was no need to be afraid. And in the verse 72 of this psalm, David, this is said of him, in fact, back up to verse 70, he also, Yahweh, chose David his servant and took him from the sheepfolds, from the care of the ewes with suckling lambs, he brought him to shepherd Jacob his people and Israel his inheritance. So he shepherded them, David did, according to the integrity of his heart, and he guided them with his skillful hands. Skillful guiding, 24-7 guiding. Even if I go into the depths of the sea, even there your hand guides me. Psalm 139. You can never be found in a place today or any day where he will not be able to guide you. His guidance has no limits on it. And what kind of path does Yahweh personally guide David? Verse 3 of Psalm 23, paths of righteousness. These paths, the word paths there. Um, is something more like a wagon's path or a track, something really packed down hard, well-worn. You know, if you walk across a, a grassy green meadow once, if you walk across that tender grass once, you will leave a track. You'll leave a path for now. And then the grass will recover and it'll stand back up and you won't see your path anymore. That is not the kind of path that's being referred to here. These are like wagon tracks, a well-worn path. These don't go away because it is more like a road. It is well-traveled. From 1841 to 1869, about 350,000 people traveled west across the territory of the United States on what was called the Oregon Trail. And that trail runs just outside of my hometown in Nebraska. 170 years later, the the hardened wagon path is still visible. The ruts that they used to fall down into, the wagon wheels, you can't see those anymore. They, they've uh, eroded. But the path is, is, a, is like a, still a paved highway of hard dirt. Wagon after wagon after wagon traveled and packed down that path. David is guided by Yahweh in a similar well-worn path. He's not the only one, evidently, who is traveling on it. Many other sheep walk the same path over and over as well. His shepherd, Yahweh, is guiding so many other sheep down the same path. It is well-worn. And Yahweh does not have another path, another kind of path. He has just this one, which is characterized by righteousness, in the paths of righteousness. It is well-worn since the garden. It's hard-packed. It's lasting. It is unmistakable. Righteousness travels this path, these paths. Righteousness uses only this way to go wherever it needs to go. And this is the only path that God guides believers in and down. Never would Yahweh guide David or would Jesus guide you or me in a path that wasn't concerned with righteousness, that wasn't concerned with right living or even good works. 
to be on any other kind of path, to be in any other kind of living, is to not be guided by God. If in examining your life, you see that you are on a path of living that actually is not concerned with righteous living as Christ and his word define it, you're not being guided by the good shepherd Jesus. But instead, you're being guided by someone else or something else. He only guides his followers into his righteous living. Let me refresh your memory with a few verses from the New Testament. Ephesians 2.10. We are his workmanship. God's been working on us. Created in Christ Jesus. In in his son creating us for good works which God prepared beforehand. He had this in mind all along so that we would walk in them on that path, on that track. Chapter four, verse one of Ephesians. I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. We've been called with the gospel call with the saving call of Jesus Christ, and we are to walk in a manner that reflects that, that is worthy of that. We walk that path. Well, what does that mean? Same chapter 4, verse 17. I affirm together, this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer as the Gentiles also walk. You don't walk in the futility of their mind. You don't walk being darkened in their understanding. You don't walk being excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they having become callous have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you did not learn Christ that way. In coming to Christ, you learned to walk a different life. Colossians 1.10 says this, that we want to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Back to Psalm 23. And know, notice what the good shepherd says is at stake at the end of verse three in guiding us in paths of righteous living. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. The name of Yahweh is at stake for David. God has tied his honor. He has tied his glory. He's tied his reputation to how his sheep live. To where his sheep walk. How they walk. So, if he tied his reputation to how we live... His design is to get the maximum glory for it, the maximum uh, honor for it. And so he guides us in paths of righteousness so he gets it. To be on any other path than righteous living while claiming his shepherding care tarnishes his glory, tarnishes his name, diminishes his name, his reputation. He puts his reputation, he puts his name as Jesus on the line in his care and guidance for us. That's why we have paths of righteousness that he guides us in. So David was never at a deficit in knowing how to live. Think about that. As a believer, he was never at a deficit. He could never say at any moment, I don't really know how to live in this situation. 
I don't know what's pleasing to the Lord. He knew because Yahweh, his shepherd, always guided him in paths, well-worn tracks, characterized by righteousness. David could say, ask, am I at a loss for how I should live under Yahweh's shepherding care? Never. I lack nothing. He guides me. This is David's first declaration. God's abounding provision as shepherd was so abounding that David said, I am in the moment lacking nothing. Nothing. I'll give you one more verse and then we'll close and pick this up next week. Second Peter chapter one, verse three. Write it down. Listen to this. Here's the way the New Testament would say it to you and me. He has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises. I'm not even reading the right verse, but that's a good one too. Verse four is really good. I encourage you to read that one later after I read verse three. Yeah, that's not embarrassing in front of everybody. Let's try verse three. His divine power has granted to us everything. Everything pertaining to what? Life and godliness. Through the true knowledge of him, that's Jesus. And he's the one who called us by his own glory and excellence. And by the way, look at verse four. By these, he has granted to us precious and magnificent promises. We have everything we need. We are lacking nothing. Believer, let's pray. Father, what an amazing thought really to just meditate on even now and and in this coming week. That when we look at you and your shepherding care for us, um, you have left nothing out. You have not forgotten something. You're not trying to help us get by with um, something on your list that didn't get purchased but because you gave us your son, we have everything. He is our rest. He is our living water to drink. He guides us how we should live our lives for him. Our souls are restored by you. Lord, what what are we missing? Nothing. Lord, I pray that you would help us this week to Um, if we need to retrain ourselves to assess how we determine what it is that we lack. Lord, I pray that we would not look to what the world says we must have. I pray that we would not listen to our fleshly passions to tell us what we must have because we will see a, a landscape of a life that's pockmarked and is full of deficits. But when we look at you, our shepherd, the good shepherd, Jesus when we see him and we think of all that he does for us and is for us and that we have in him, Lord, we can say, I am lacking nothing. Thank you for your kindness to us, your abounding provision. There is no one like you. It is good to be under your salvation care, your shepherding character and care.
We love you, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.